0: All right, we are live. All right, what's going on, everybody? So this is Weapon Wheel podcast episode 107. I originally named it 106.8, but I realized we were getting like way too. Uh, so this is Weapon Wheel. Oh, I got it. My, my bad. I realized it was getting way too Kingdom Hearts, so I had to just put you know make this episode 107. Um, so we got a special guest today, and it is Jeremy Dunham, the vice president of psionic studios who developed rocket league what's going on jeremy hey man how's it going so uh thank you for coming I know you're a busy man now being the vice president of psionic studios and everything um so
1: I'm happy yeah. to be here. I'm, I, I still remember when uh, we first met a few years ago at e3 so i'm I'm glad to be on here and, and chat with you again it's been a long time
0: yeah it definitely has had to uh book this uh interview like a few months in advance so uh <laughs> yeah and, sorry uh, yes. about <laughs> that yeah, no problem. I know you're busy and everything. So we're going to get right into the questions. Um, sure. And I'm probably going to take some questions from Twitter. If anybody has any questions for, for Jeremy, at the end of all our questions, uh, we'll try to get to some Twitter questions or, you know, write them in the comments section and everything like that. Um, so for anybody who's not familiar with you, because, you know, some people are who really pay attention to the industry. Uh, mm-hmm. But for those who are not, can you just give us a little summary Of your career in the gaming industry?
1: Sure. Would you like me to? I'll start from now and work my way backwards if that's all right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Right now, I am uh, the vice president of uh, all the publishing duties here at uh, Psionic Studios. And what that means is that uh, I oversee all of our public facing initiatives, things like esports and uh, community initiatives, uh, public relations, community, things like that, and as well as business development and uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of those fun, boring things that a lot, of, uh, a lot of game studios have to deal with on a day-to-day basis. I've been here at the studio for about three and a half years. I joined about a year before Rocket League came out. Uh, prior to that, I uh, used to work at uh, Zipper Interactive in uh, Seattle area. It was actually in Redmond, where I worked on uh, games like MAG and SOCOM 4 and uh, Unit 13. I'm the SOCOM lovers. Yeah, and there are still a lot of them. I still, to this day, I get a lot of messages from people asking when the next SOCOM is going to come out. Fortunately, I don't have any control over that, so I I don't know when when or if that will ever happen, but I'd actually like to see one. Uh, But while I was at Zipper, I actually had a dual role. I was there as uh, both a senior designer. I did a lot of narrative and world design while I was there, specifically on Unit 13. Uh, And then also I was uh, head of communications and uh, their community efforts there as well. So It was even though it was a larger development studio than Sionix is now, uh, they didn't have anyone prior to myself that really worked in uh, with my kind of background. So that's why I had a dual role. And then prior to that, I was at uh, IGN.com for over a decade. Uh, I left to go join Zipper at that time, uh, heading up the editorial, all the editorial at IGN, uh, overseeing all of our different channels. Uh, But I had started all the way back in 1999 there as an associate Contracted editor on IGN Dreamcast. Mm. So, in in uh, in short, I, I'm just old. But uh, <laughs> I, I, I've uh, learned something new everywhere I've been. Uh, I was also uh, in between that zipper and here. I was at a startup for a little bit, of, uh, a little bit over a year and a half, just trying out a, a, a trying that out. Uh, it didn't work out so well. But uh, <laughs> I was there. Uh, Psionics, though, is uh, by far my favorite place to have ever worked. I, I definitely uh, enjoy working at Rocket League, and um, I'm I'm just happy to be part of of the industry and my job, and it's uh, it's really a dream come true for me. Okay,
0: yeah, it definitely sounds good. Um, and I'm you know I'm a diehard SOCOM two uh, specifically two fan. I still have the disc. I don't know I don't know yeah. why I keep it around. You know I don't got a PS two, but it's like something I
1: can't even let go of. Um, oh man, everyone loves SOCOM two. Even when we released SOCOM four, people said great. When are you gonna remake SOCOM two? That's what everybody wants, man. Yeah, that's the yeah. favorite.
0: Right. Um, so,
1: <coughs> what
0: what uh, what games are you currently playing right now? Like, I'm interested in
1: that. Well, I actually play quite a bit because uh, I have this. I have a bit of OCD, so I spend uh, um, moments every day playing at least one Xbox game and one PlayStation game, so I can get a trophy and achievement in each. There you be- go. And I've been keeping that streak on Xbox now for almost four years without missing one and on PlayStation a little over three years without missing one. Uh, So I play a lot, Uh, but right now I'm actually getting, I'm gearing up for the release of um, shadows of war. So I've been playing a lot of uh, shadow of Mordor uh, kind of re familiarize myself with that. And I was, I, I just like those kind of games. I'm a big fantasy fan and, uh, being able to hop into the Middle Earth in a way that I haven't played before. You know, usually there's retellings of Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit, and this one wasn't. So for me, that's kind of a, a nice way to, to blow off steam in between a lot of the other games that I play, just in, in short bursts because I don't have a lot of time like I used to. Mm-hmm. So I spend a good amount of time playing smaller, more condensed experiences, things that I can get in and get out. And some of them are ridiculous, things like Mr. Masaji, which I thought was hilarious and, and really fun. Uh, to uh, some of the old school classic games that they re-release, things like Street Fighter. Play that with my wife a lot. She's a she used to be a competitive fighting game player, so we have lots of debates over what fighting games are best, and so, uh, a little bit of everything. Okay, so like Jack move is our resident
0: uh, trophy whore. Like he, how many how yes. many platinums you got, Jack? Uh, ninety eight, ninety eight. So, Nine. Do you actually chase trophies, or are you just like get them as they come?
1: Uh. <laughs> I'd chase them for sure. But I, I focused more on Xbox because I started the achievement hunt really when I was a diehard Xbox player before PS3 had introduced the trophies. So uh, I'd really kind of built up a score there and I was kind of focusing on that for a while. But the PS4 was such a good system that that kind of triggered that element for me to uh, start doing the thing on that platform. I don't have, uh, let's see, how many, let me look it up. I'm on True Trophies right now. How many completed games do I have on PlayStation? I've completed 122 games on oh, PlayStation. Oh, yeah. And on Xbox, uh, sorry, I'm typing in real time. I know this is exciting. No, that's cool. Okay. On True Achievements, I have completed 193 games there. Okay. I, but my gamer score, is, it's, I get a lot of flack for it from friends and family. It's about 200, almost 239,000. I'm on my way there. Damn. You're a real up? gamer. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Really? That's quite a lot. Uh, okay. And on PlayStation, my level's not that high. I'm only like 20, about halfway through level 20. Right. Um, nice but that's because cool. I focus on Xbox tr- achievements for so long. But I, I never miss a day. I'm always going to get a trophy and something. Okay. All right. Cool. Um,
0: so I want to talk about Rocket League for a little bit. So yeah. uh, let's go back to the decision to put it on PlayStation Plus, right? Mm-hmm. Because I'm sure there was a little uh, I'm sure there was a little bit of uncertainty with the studio of, about it, right? So what exactly went behind that decision to put it on PlayStation Plus which obviously turned out to be a great decision?
1: Uh, there was a a ton of debate about that before we did it. Many many meetings. But I ultimately it came down to uh, we we had a couple of challenges. In a way, Rocket League had already existed before because it was out in 2008 as uh, Supersonic Acrobatic Rocket Car Battle Cars. Right. <laughs> Granted, it didn't have the same uh, excellence in physics that Rocket League has, and it didn't uh, look the same visually. It was a much uh, older game, and uh, there's some different. There's a bit of a different approach. It was still multiplayer focused, but it had a lot more single-player mini games, and you know, it was a, it was a different game, but it was basically uh, the same in, in terms of its concept. And so, but we knew that the game was was uh, was good, and it, that it, the people that played it would give it a chance because we saw that with the own community that we built up around the original game and ourselves as a, a studio, and how much we like to play the game internally. Uh, but our challenge was we didn't have any marketing money, and that. We, because we were a small studio and everything that we did was to work for hire. At, at that time we were developing a game for square Enix that was in beta called Nosgoth. It was a, a multiplayer game that was based on the legacy of Kane series. Uh, and 95% of the studio's refor- resources was going to that game. Rocket league was a sort of a passion project that we built on the side for the very small amount of people that weren't involved with the, the Nosgoth project. And, uh, we had a lot of challenges. We didn't have any money to promote it, and uh, we didn't have uh, a brand name to, to already kind of rest upon, something like you would have in a Grand Theft Auto or uh, an Assassin's Creed. It, the game wasn't known in large circles. So our number one challenge when you're trying to market a game is, is to how do you get people in front of it? And at that time, our best bet was to, uh, to have another company market it for us, and in this case, it was PlayStation because they spend a, an enormous amount of time and effort and uh, a good deal of money promoting the PlayStation Plus service. And we knew that if we were to release in that field, that uh, that we would be able to hook players once they played it, because they could see the quality of the game. We never anticipated the amount of players. We actually set all sorts of, of records in terms of how many players came in to, to play the game for PlayStation Plus. The server crashed yeah. too, right? On like- oh yeah, immediately. Mm. <laughs> Uh, well, I shouldn't say immediately because we we had a, we we started off pretty good when it started the initial rollout, and I still remember uh, talking to our director of infrastructure, Jared Heck, on the first night. I, we were talking across uh, the kitchen table, and he said, "Oh, it looks like uh, it's, it's pretty good. Things are stable," and we we kind of breathed a sigh of relief, like we anticipated this properly. But then, as the as it started to roll out into more places later into the night, and eventually into uh, the more popular regions uh, that turned very very quickly and the servers went down because there was such a high demand to play that we had to react uh, but that that was this proof though that the strategy worked the playstation plus idea was the right move and and but at, to your point earlier we were really it was a really hard decision because when you don't have a lot of money as a game studio and you don't you're you're resting a lot of your strategy on a big deal, such as giving your game away to a certain uh, sect of people without any promise of getting anything back from them long term, or under the potential uh, idea that someone may never buy your game because all of them get it, it's, it's a scary, scary proposition, but we had enough confidence in the game to think that we would definitely uh, net out in a better place uh, than we started, and uh, it, it worked, and worked much better than we had hoped. But that was the sort of the initial thinking behind it and, and why we went that way, and we definitely don't regret it.
0: Okay. Yeah, it definitely worked out more than, I think, any other, you know, than it did for any other P, uh, PS Plus game. Yeah. Um, so can you explain exactly how uh, PlayStation Plus works on, like, I guess, the money end? Because as far as us gamers see it, we assume Sony is like, we're going to give you this lump sum bag of money and you're going to let us, you know, have us this, have this game for free. And then after that, uh, you get to earn your money. Because I assume you're not earning any money. The, the the time is free. You don't get any of those downloads, like no incentive or anything, right? Is that how it works?
1: I'm actually, uh, we, we're contractually bound not to be able to talk about it. And the reason that we, we can't talk about how our PlayStation Plus deal worked is that it's not necessarily the same PlayStation Plus deal that games before us or games after us have. Right, okay. It, it, it's something that we actually can't talk It's why we've never really talked about it publicly. It's because it's just one of those very sensitive issues that it's different from game to game and team to team. Uh, but, I mean, if, if you're looking at it at the meta, uh, it definitely wasn't like a. We, we did get some money, yes, of course. Everyone always gets some amount of money. But, I mean, it wasn't anything like earth-shattering. Uh, and it's, it's, I, it's something we were the risk we were willing to take uh, regardless, really, of how much it ultimately would have netted us from, from that net sum in the beginning, uh, because it, it really, uh, it, what really matters is that we have faith in the game, and that people would come back and still want to play it. And PlayStation was the way to get it out in front of people, and to make people aware of it, so that when we simultaneously released it on PC, which in itself was a big debate at the time, we weren't even sure if we'd have that version ready in time, our uh, our our, uh, our team really worked hard and pushed hard to get that done for a day-and-date launch so that we have something we could actually sell in a traditional sense. Uh, that, was, that was key to us having success beyond just uh, PlayStation Plus, especially that, in that first month when the majority of our PlayStation players are going to come in through that PlayStation Plus deal. Um, so, I mean, there are there a lot of risks involved, but uh, you know, historically, based on the price of the game and the fact that we had a small team building it, at least uh, we hadn't invested an insane amount of money. It only cost us about really less than $2 million, but usually sum it to about $2 million lifetime development mm-hmm. cost up until the release. Obviously, it's been a lot more to maintain it after that with our servers and other content and bigger teams that we've added to it. But up until the point of release, it was less than $2 million to develop over a series of years. Uh, and and you know we're, we're happy to have been resolved, but hopefully everyone else is too. So...
0: You, you got to tell us about the bag, because I think this was probably I, I have to assume this from what it cost to develop. This had had to be one of the most profitable games like ever. How much has it made in sales like to date now?
1: Uh, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> because well, we, know, it's a funny thing about talking about about talking about how much money you've made in the beginning. We would do it because uh, we were very proud of our performance and, and how we were doing it. But there comes a certain point when you start talking about how well a, a game does to so where it kind of skirts the line from talking about success to it almost coming across as though you're bragging or mm-hmm. you're, trying to, uh, you're trying to position yourself in a way that uh, people aren't really that fond of. So you've actually gotten away from talking about what kind of money the, the, the game makes at all. And that's why we focus on on uh, sort of the community-oriented aspects of the game, how many players we have, the fact that we have had well over 35 million players play the game. Um, and yeah. And 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 to, to us, what really stands out more than anything is not necessarily that the game continues to sell either on the DLC level or on, on the game level itself, but the fact that people keep coming back in larger numbers month over month. We're not losing players like a lot of games do. We just keep adding to our baseline, which is, to us, the most successful metric. Because really, we're talking about a $20 game here with uh, ninety nine. DLC and even cheaper keys if you buy them in bulk. So, I mean, there's really not uh, a huge amount of transactions going on every time you you, you do a single transaction. But Lifetime, we think that uh, for us, the main goal was to have a game that was successful enough for us to keep maintaining it. And uh, we're definitely doing that. We're able to grow. And uh, now it's actually growing so fast. And it's been the story since the beginning that we just... Have to try everything we can just to keep up with the success we're constantly adding to our team especially on the engineering and online services side where we need to get more and more people in place in order to to keep a a handle on this uh (laughs) this monster that's basically kind of sprung out of a a small passion project we're happy to do it but it's it's a lot of work
0: how much would you say like the studio has grown from the time um you know it released to now? because i'm sure you had to go on a hiring spree like how much has it grown
1: we're almost three times the size that we were when we launched the game. When we, when Rocket League shipped, we were at about 36 people. Uh, and now we're up almost at 100 employees now. We're, we're hovering in that mid-90 range. Mm-hmm. And uh, a, a good amount of the people that have been added to the team since then are we created an entire online services team. Then that's, the size of that team is in double digits. That team didn't exist at all. There wasn't even one person dedicated to solely online services prior to release. It was something that our other, our, our other engineers, our client engineers and our production team who were used to be programmers uh, helped do uh, prior to release. Uh, and then we also, the team that, uh, that I oversee here at the company was also sprung up out of, uh, out of nothing. I was the only person here at launch who did the duties that I suggested, and now we have an entire team dedicated to esports, the community, to public relations. We have a creative services team that makes all of our graphics and creates our videos. Uh, we have a customer service team recently that we introduced uh, that didn't exist. So there are a lot of extra elements that you have to bring in just to support the game of this size, and we're not even close to that. We're, We, If you were to visit our website now, I don't have it up in front of me, but I think we have something like a dozen open positions right now, and we're going to be adding a lot more in the, in the near future. And they range from everything from the disciplines I just mentioned to – Other ones that we haven't even talked about yet, financial layers, bringing in people to manage accounts. We're looking for recruiters because we're hiring so many people. We need more people. By the way, that's not a solicitation to uh, recruiting services if you're listening. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We want our own internal recruiter. Uh, We do our own internal recruiting. We prefer that. Just a heads up if you have any ambitious uh, recruiters out there trying to get us to get their service.
0: Okay. Okay. Okay, that's that's interesting. Um, I mean,
1: we're, we're growing like crazy. We had to move the whole company out of our old building into a new building. We moved into it right after E3 this year because we ran out of space. At one point, when Rocket League launched, there was a there was an enormous amount of open space in the the floor that we had uh, in downtown San Diego. And now uh, the the space that we have now is spans two floors and it's four times the size of the building of the floor that we had in our old building. And we've had serious conversations of did we go too small? Are we actually going to outgrow this place now? Uh, hopefully, we won't. We have, we have a, about forty thousand square feet to work at, work with in this new in this new place, and hopefully that's enough to sustain us for a while. Um, but we, you know, we're we're also confident in the fact that even though the company is growing, we, we don't grow for the sake of growing. We only fill in the positions we absolutely need or think we need. So we're not going to go crazy and just bring in 30 people of one discipline because we think that that makes sense for the time. We're very cognizant of trying to avoid one of the common video game industry trappings of hiring and getting rid of people based on cycles. When we we hire people, we want to bring them in for a career. We we expect these people to want to stay here for as long as possible and to work on what they want to work on for as long as possible and so a lot of our the, a lot of the way that we approach hiring people is based on that concept. It's one of the reasons that I enjoy working here so much, and then I think a lot of people who are here came here in the first place. So we have a very different approach to the traditional industry machine of game development. Yeah, that's great because they definitely have you know have a feeling of that job security. Um, yeah, I think we have a I think we have one of the highest percentages of homeowners compared to people renting than any developer I'm aware of. Wow. Now, now, I'm not going to spout a stat because I actually don't know it. I'm just I'm speaking anecdot- <laughs> I'm speaking anecdotally, but a lot of people here, a good large percentage of people own their own place or plan to buy within the next year uh, versus most other game development studios where I, I've been at where they don't have that level of comfort. They're always on edge about what's going to happen around at the end of the next project. That's I- not the approach. Obviously, we're not Nirvana. We can't promise unending job security for anyone, but our approach to hiring and our, our focus on the game and on our employees and the community within the, the company itself is very important to us. That's really good. I might need to move then. Um,
0: so rocket league is one of the first games. I think this generation that I remember like turned into like a games as a service where you just continue to release, mm-hmm. you know, content, expand, you know, uh, expansion and content after content, Mm-hmm. Uh, why did why did the studio decide to be so aggressive and and go that route? Because I think y'all kind of did it before. It was I would say commonplace in the industry. Now a lot of games are chasing being games as a service, but y'all yeah. did it very early. Like how did y'all make that decision?
1: Well, I mean, initially it was because that's what we expect. I think that what the expectations of us were from our community and our whole approach from leadership, Dave, our CEO, myself, Corey, who heads up our development side. We, we are all people uh, who believe in designing a game around community. And what the community wants is what we want to focus on putting in the game, and putting it in all of our games, really, and our, our approach to game design. And if we put ourselves in their shoes, which we do, because not only do we play our own game, but we play lots of other games. It's a studio made up of, of hardcore gamers. Uh, that's what we would expect from games that we like. So we wanted to show people that we were in it from the long haul from the beginning. And you can go back to really – I think even when I spoke with you at E3, I don't, I don't know if we spoke about it on camera or not, but even then we were talking about this is something that we plan to get behind and, and, and really support mm-hmm. because we had – we saw the proof in our original game, in Battle Cars, that there was a community that would not leave you as long as you supported the game. And even then when we were speaking to you, uh, back in 2015 that was seven years after the first battle cars had come out and we were still supporting the game then so it was already ingrained into our uh, our Just our, our company philosophy and approach that we've made this game for people. They're playing it It wouldn't be right for us to just abandon it after we've gotten X amount of dollars or X amount of players and move on to this, the next thing That's why we don't even have plans for Rocket League 2 right now right now we're we want to we want to get rid of the idea of trying to analyze a game and trying to keep taking money from people that are want the next biggest thing. We don't need to do that. They already have the thing we want them to play in front of them, which is rocket league. Mm -hmm. The best thing we can do as game developers is to make that game better so that they don't have a reason to want a new game. They, They should be happy with the game. They already invested in that they've already spent time in. We don't want to wipe that all away just because there's an opportunity to make money or to get extra headlines. It's, it's about maintaining the people that you've made a promise to essentially by creating a game and maintaining it for as long as possible. And our approach is we're going to do that uh, until people aren't playing it anymore. Mm.
0: Yeah, because that it was really interesting. Cause when I seen the huge success, I was like, yeah, we, I'm, I'm expecting a sequel in like three years. That's going to be, I, <laughs> I already saw it coming, but then y'all started, kept on releasing content and I was like, Oh, this is not happening. They're, they're definitely doing this as a service to the community. They don't gotta, you know, b- buy a brand new game. And I don't even think with a game like Rocket League, it's it was it's completely necessary to release a brand new game because everything that you could possibly implement in a new game, you could also do in content releases. So, mm-hmm. you
1: know. yeah, and to, to us, that's sort of the way that games should be, anyway. Like, so I don't know, uh, I don't know what most people's opinion is on it, but just personally speaking, when I buy a game that I'm really passionate about. So in the past, I, I loved, for example, the Fight Night series, because I, I love boxing. It's my favorite sport. I can't get enough of it. I would, I would play Fight Night religiously, and I would always be excited for the competition that I could find online and new features that they would add via DLC. And I'd be fine with buying a new Fight Night whenever it came out, but it always felt to me as a player that uh, just as I had sort of gotten close to mastering the game in my own way, that it was time for me now to learn all new mechanics and change with all these subtleties they brought into the next installment, and in something like that where it's very uh, identity-based, you have very specific people attached to it. You see this, the same thing in Madden and other sports-related games where you have changing rosters and stats associated with people. That that's kind of needed to a certain extent. But as a fan, as someone who liked a very particular style of gameplay, I liked the idea of being able to stick with a certain thing and prove to myself just how good I am at this and to see if I could get better. And when you analyze a game and you're changing rules and you're changing, your you're, you're setting the expectation of your community that they, they're going to have to stop playing after 10 months before 10 to 11 months before they have to get ready to buy the next one. You do a lot to really hurt your own competitive scene. You do a lot to really kind of change the mindset. And uh, I, I think that that's just not the way to go in, in today's climate. And that's one of the reasons we're, big into cross network play because we want we want this game to live on not only on the current systems that it's it's currently rely, uh, resting on, but also to have the potential to continue on in other systems in the future, whatever they might be, so that we are able to keep Rocket League alive for for people no matter how they're playing or where they're playing from. And it's it's a really important goal for us. Okay. Good answers.
0: Definitely good answers. Um has, so, what's the few... Well, you kind of answered the question already with Rocket. You're not working on Rocket League two right now, but is there anything else like that's going on with Sionics as a studio? Any other projects you're working on?
1: Uh, every game development studio I've ever worked at always has another project or two or three or nine in the in the pipeline uh, in the background. We have a prototype team at Psionics that's always working on uh, new ideas and potential projects, but we haven't announced anything because. Raga League has put us in a position now where we're in no hurry to have to rush anything out. We don't have we don't have the um, the need to push something out for the sake of doing it. We can actually take our time and and really work out alternative ideas, test things, uh, bounce new ideas off of each other. So we absolutely have lots of concepts that we're working on in various stages of of discussion and, uh, and prototyping, uh, but nothing to announce right now in terms of this is what's coming in after Rocket League. We're we're taking our time on that and when the time is right we'll let everybody know and hopefully they'll they'll like it the same as they do Rocket League. Even mm-hmm. if it's like half as much we'd be happy. <laughs>
0: right, got it. Okay. Um Jack Jeremy or Smoothie I had, um any questions for right now?
2: uh what do i i did have one question it's really don't have nothing to do with rocket league even though i do love the game got the platinum in it uh shout out to you for that uh but uh correct me if i'm wrong didn't you uh you created a podcast beyond on ign right yes yeah i did okay for Uh, i was gonna ask you it's kind of like a two-pronged question i was gonna ask you uh do you still listen to like gaming podcasts and also have you noticed the influx of uh of a lot of podcasts because uh, uh, podcast beyond was one like the first one, so yeah, yeah. that was pretty much my question.
1: Yeah, I, I still listen to them. I don't listen to podcast beyond anymore, but that's not a slight against the current version or format of it. It's because when I started podcast beyond, it was with Greg and Chris and Jeff Haynes, and we were we were doing it as sort of a, a just a way to blow off steam. Granted, it was a way to blow off steam that I made mandatory for all the teams, but it was. <laughs> Uh, it was it was just kind of a way for us to communicate and talk about games in a way we couldn't do at that time, where video was still kind of coming about. And it, YouTube wasn't as popular as it is. Twitch didn't exist. It was really one of the only avenues outside of writing very long articles to kind of just communicate with our, our, our fans and our readers. And uh, so I still, I still have a personal connection to a lot of those guys that I used to work with. So I do listen to uh, kind of funny games daily, every day because I, Greg is a great friend of mine. I hired him. I have watched his career blossom from the time he started until now. Uh, and, and also, I just that was a style that I was used to speaking in myself, and it kind of brings me closer to that group even though I'm not there. It's kind of a way just to kind of catch up with old friends without having to hop on a plane. Uh, and, and because of my schedule, uh, I can only really listen to about one a day on my way to work and on my way back. And it's only about a half hour drive for me. So I listen to the first half on the way in and the second half on the way out. And uh, that's about all I have time for. I'll, I'll, I'll watch some YouTube videos that are kind of podcasty sometimes. I'm a big fan of, of uh, groups like New Rock Stars, and I like Game Ranks a lot. They do a lot of really good stuff. I've actually listened to a couple of your guys' podcasts as well. Um, and I think that they're pretty good. I'm, unfortunately, I don't listen semi, or semi-regularly or regularly because of my schedule. Uh, but I, I definitely think that there's a rise of alternate opinions out there. And I think that that's one of the big differences between when I was in games media a decade ago and the way that the game gaming culture is now is that there's still a need for games press and sort of that official discussion you'd have from traditional publications. But I think right one of the reasons that gaming has elevated the point of it now is now at the mainstream level are there's so many tools for people real game fans of different backgrounds that aren't, that are talking about the things they want to talk about without having to worry about page views or uh, what is the hot games. And because we only have a certain amount of staff, we can only cover 20 of those games a month, right? And now you can talk about the things you want to talk about and you'll find the audience that you're finding. And there are so many ways to listen to it, either through, through traditional podcasts or watching it on Twitch or YouTube. To uh, to even just hanging out in Discord and chatting that way. I mean, there's so many different ways now to talk about games and enjoy games. I think it, that's really been one of the keys to elevating all of games, and why I still like to at least be a part of uh, a, a part of it by listening to opinions. Granted, they're opinions that I'm used to hearing because I listen to the same guys for for years now. Um, but it's it's something that I, I definitely don't see myself stopping anytime soon. And by the way, um, streaming in general. Is one of the reasons Rocket League ha- took off as quickly as it did? Because absolutely, yeah. when the first game when the first game came out way back when, like I said, a lot of those things didn't exist. Social media was just sort of was like post, post MySpace and Twitter and Facebook were on the rise. YouTube was still very young. Twitch didn't exist. There was we did have uh, in Battle Cards the ability to share a game out uh, or a clip out to YouTube, but it, it just the the timing wasn't right. This time when we came out. Anyone can play the game anytime and if people came to us prior to release and said can I have a code? I told them yes Of course you can have a code. Please play our game and uh, hopefully people will, will enjoy it and that will get them excited about this game that uh, That they aren't playing yet, but could soon and that was actually a big part of our strategy. Is just let people see what the game is about and 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 we let the game speak for itself and it took over from there and then, without that kind of support from the YouTube streamers and from the Twitch audience, we would not have reached the same kind of uh, overnight reaction that we had this time. And it's really not overnight. Obviously, it took. It was a little bit longer than that, but uh, it, it was an integral part of, of Rocket League's success, and will continue to be. It's, it's, we're seeing that with uh, RLCS and all of our other esports stuff that's running on television and uh, on Twitch and uh, other venues. Okay. All right. Um, so, I, uh, oh, okay, right, go, right.
0: Ahead. go ahead, Jimmy. Yeah, yeah let me. I want to throw a question in there real quick. Um sure. The last time I seen a game get this much like DLC support was probably like Grand Theft Auto. So I was wondering, like, how far or how long do you guys think y'all will keep that up with supporting the game and putting out all this free DLC for people? Because you spoke on early about you thinking that's the way to complete the game,
1: and I agree. But how long do you think you guys will be able to keep that up? As long as we can. I mean, we're, we're right now. So just for example, uh, we had a meeting earlier in the week, just going over our plans for all of next year. Mm-hmm. And we've already we already have the next year of content that we would like to include in the game, sort of on the high level, not on not on a, a minutia, not piece by piece, but at least a high level of certain content that we want to release over the next year. And then our next steps really is to kind of start breaking that down as to what makes sense to, to release it, et cetera. Um, but that's just the next year, and then we obviously are already talking about the year after that as well. And and so that's, and that's just in content. In terms of features, that's a separate discussion that we're also working on. We have lots of ideas, ways to improve the game, things that we could potentially add. So right now, I can tell you with 100% confidence that we don't have an end date in mind. Mm-hmm. We, we plan to keep going, as long as it makes sense to, to go. And from our, our point of view, making sense is if people are playing the game and they want the stuff, we're going to keep making it and giving them, giving them the avenues to experience it. Uh, so I would say at the very least, years and years and years before we would consider stepping back. For, from a, from just personally speaking, uh, the, t- the team uh, is really big. We like to hit at least something every quarter or so in the year. And I think you've seen that over the last two years. Every every three months or so, we we kind of release either a big new feature or some kind of big new content. We've started to roll out our next kind of uh, the seeds for what we have planned for our next update now, and uh, we're sticking to that plan. It seems to work. The the fans seem to like it, and that's uh, we don't see any reason to change it.
2: That's pretty interesting. Um, um, the way that you're how pretty much. One game and being at, being at as service base can really run as a business and um with a plan like that i I would see there for no end to be in sight with that keep it rolling as long as you can because that would be amazing you know there's only very few games that you can name that have that longevity and usually you find them on p c like water of warcraft and 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 stuff like that uh where they like survived the uh, uh decades you know yeah. um so that would be awesome to see uh a game like rocket league do that and it definitely has a, a potential to do that with uh the climate that it's in um i my question for you is that i know you're, you're going to be dropping a switch version pretty soon correct yeah yeah we're targeting the holiday okay are, are you guys going like uh, digital with that or are you going to be playing a, uh releasing a retail version of that as well
1: we're definitely releasing it digitally the retail version is something we're actively exploring mm-hmm. um, because it's it's a cartridge based, and there is a it's also the first time we're coming the platform, so we're still learning a lot about the process on that particular side, especially spinning up as I mentioned earlier, uh, we're a small team uh, in the beginning that have really just kind of been going over the last two years building up to prepare to prepare ourselves to handle um, the, the larger logistical tasks uh, so. We don't have anything to announce at right now about a retail version. It's definitely something we would like to do, absolutely. Uh, we're still waiting for uh, enough information that makes sense to, to people to tell them about it before we can really get into more than just, it's in the plans, but no, it definitely won't be uh, day and date. I can tell you that much for sure. Yeah, I, f- <laughs> I figured it out. I'm sorry yeah. about that. But. Digital first, uh, retail later, uh, hopefully it's in the plans. Uh, we, we think we probably have... More information as we get closer to our, our digital release, though.
0: Can now, people expect a sequel? Well, he said they're not now.
1: Rocket League? Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe one day, far, far, far into the future. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I look at I look at Rocket League, and so does the rest of the team, uh, as an evergreen game that just like a World of Warcraft or a Minecraft or basically anything with craft in it mm-hmm. uh, that it's going to be around for as long as people want it to be around. I, I don't see the, the need to make another one for the sake of doing it. Uh, I, I, Expand it. Yeah. Expand it for sure is something that we continue to do and plan to do. And uh, we, we would love to see just how big we can, we can make it. Uh, but that's a lot of that's also driven by the community and the sorts of features they want to see us add. We're actually heavily influenced by the sorts of things that people mention on, uh, on Twitter and on Reddit and on our own forums and, uh, it's it. people I think have a lot more influence in the game than they realize uh, it's very popular to say that in games development we do what the community <laughs> wants us to do but we really we really do take a lot of what they say to heart and we, we try to incorporate those things sometimes our own detriment where someone a community member will say what about this and we're like oh that's in the plan for like two quarters from now but they really seem to want it now what can we do to <laughs> happen earlier and then we usually kick our own asses and you know, so I'm find a way that. to put it in there, but at our own
0: personal sleep schedules. So I got to ask you, you know, a r- real juicy question. Um, you because you I assume you got to know what they think. And what is Sony's deal with crossplay? <laughs> what, what, what is their so
1: problem? My question being, <laughs> what is their problem? I know, you know, something.
2: Uh,
1: well, I mean, publicly, they've said that, you know, that that's just not currently within the ecosystem they want to support, right? That for them, it's about focusing on the PlayStation side. And a lot of speculation from people in the media has been that they don't need to do it, right, that they're not doing it because they don't see a need. Uh, if, if that is the reason, I disagree with that. And I think a lot of people do disagree with it. I think that the proof that cross-network play is important is found in all of the games now, including our own, that are incorporating this feature, and it does a lot for individual game communities in more than I think people even realize. So, for example, Rocket League cross-network play, if we had launched without cross-network play uh, with PC and PS4 when we first started, I don't think you would have seen the kind of reaction that we had to the game, because you'd have all these people on the PC side enclosed in their own audience. They would not have had access to those millions of players that came in from the PlayStation side that first month. And they wouldn't have had the opportunities to hop into a match as quickly and as easily as they would have otherwise. And they wouldn't have seen the game in the same light that they, they did see it. And then on the Xbox side, you have the same thing. Every time we launch a new platform, you're kind of hoping that you have the best possible size of your audience on that platform. But by cross network, how many people you have, at launch is no longer a concern. You can hop in and play with anyone on any platform at any time right off the bat. It alleviates a lot of uh, the concerns you'd have on coming to other platforms. That's part one. Obviously, people who create their own platforms aren't going to find that as, a, as a, a compelling argument to do it. like, well, that's another reason to buy another platform. But for <laughs> me, the, the most compelling reason to do it is because now, regardless of who you are or where you are, or your technology level. If you're available to play with each other across multiple platforms, you can do that without having to invest in another version of the game, having to invest in another console or another PC. You don't have to, or a new PC, not another PC, unless there's some kind of great we,
0: we just assume, you know,
1: it's so Nine PCs. But the, the, the key is that you are allowing people the opportunity to play together without a restriction. Now you can start. Now you can start uh, building a community based on a game and uh, a very specific brand, if you, if you will, as opposed to having to go release by release. It elongates the life of your game it incre- and it broadens the appeal of your game. And I was always telling people who asked me about it uh, a lot at E3, you know, what, how would you compare this to something? And I, to me, it's, I look at it from the cell phones and I kept using this example of my brother and I. Like, I have an iPhone. My brother has a Samsung Galaxy. And he, he, he picks the phone because he likes the features that it has. He likes the size of the phone. He likes the way it feels. And I pick my phone for the same reason. But if you told me I couldn't call him because I don't have a Samsung Galaxy. <laughs> right. I'd be pissed off. I, I wouldn't think that that makes a lot of sense. And I think that we've now reached to a point in terms of accessibility to information, accessibility to entertainment with all the streaming services, everything, that the next logical step is that, Gamers need accessibility to each other, regardless of how they get there. And yeah. I do think that this is a I, I do think that this is a victory that will eventually come for the video game industry at large. The key, really, is for people to get behind it in mass. And what's what's happened so far is that there've been small pockets of of really pro cross network play every time it kind of comes up here and there. Uh, but it's gonna have to, It's it's gonna take a, a sustained. Uh, conviction from fans to really kind of help push us over the edge to where it's no longer a hurdle. I do believe, honestly, that we are going to get to the day where it's no longer uh, a hurdle, but how long that day is, I don't know. We are going to keep doing our part, though, to make it sooner rather than later, Uh, and uh, we do it quite often. I'm sure we're we're probably pretty annoying by now, but... I mean... I think
0: as long as Sony is dominating the way they will, and then we assume that's what they're just cocky and they're arrogant because they're, you know, blowing out the competition. They're like, nah, we don't need to play with them. We'll play in our own yard. And I, I, I feel like unless they get some real competition or they feel threatened, they feel like they don't have to right now. So that's what we assume it is. Sony just being arrogant again.
1: See, that's, I think if you look at it, a platform by platform basis, uh, fans of a single platform could make that argument. They could say, why would, why would we need to do that if, We have the biggest audience and the most systems. But look at it from the other perspective. If you were to take all the other audiences combined that do have the ability to play the cross network, that's a much bigger number. Mm -hmm. People that can play on Xbox and PC and Switch together would outnumber the PlayStation side. True. Mm -hmm. If you look at it from that perspective, now you're in the minority. Now you're looking at a competitive disadvantage. If If I was looking at it objectively and coming in and saying, I have all these systems and here's here is one platform that can't do something these, all the other platforms can, I would position that as a competitive disadvantage. And you need to support that feature too, in order to be competitive with the people that are already doing it. Right. So I'll try yeah. anything and I'll say it all to make it happen.
2: <laughs> so I got, I got two other questions um, um, for you. One is just a play onto what we're already talking about. Now, because you've you've currently you know you and the people at Minecraft are like you know mastering this cross network thing, mm-hmm. um, you've you first started with the PlayStation PC, and now on Xbox you got I believe Xbox PC Switch and and are is it going to be cross platform with um with Apple whatever product I don't know if you're putting it on um
1: mean Mac or something the Mac uh platform or the but so, um actually so the so. I know you haven't asked your question yet, but just to clarify, it'll be, uh, it's right now, if you buy it on steam, you own it then on Mac too. Oh, okay. And on Linux. Uh, oh, lovely. but really it's the only officially supported Linux version though, is the steam OS version. Um, okay. but you know, some of the other Linux platforms will run it. Okay. But if you buy that one, you have it. Uh, and that, so the PC version can play with any platform. PC can play against Xbox or Switch or PlayStation. Uh, That's that's one of the advantages that they have. Obviously, they can't play with all of them at the same time because of the restrictions uh, on the PlayStation side, but they can can hop into any of those scenarios. On Xbox, they'll be able to play against PC and Switch. On Switch, it'll be against Xbox and PC. PlayStation can play with PC users uh, only, Uh, but that is is a form of cross-network. And we definitely appreciated having that at launch, but for us, we believe the next step is true cross-network play with it with everything. Sorry to interrupt.
2: No, 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 that's all right. That, that's all right. I was going to ask you, but you kind of answered the question anyway. I was going, I was going to ask you, well, how how does that even work? Having that like fork where two platforms can play uh, with each other, but the others can and it just can't play through that one. But you answered the whole like, well, PC can play with PlayStation and um xbox and switch can play with all but playstation so i just didn't know how like the game would read like oh well this is on playstation so let's block that one out or how does that
1: like how is that determined it's basically like uh like if you've ever been to uh if you've ever seen those old school operator switchboards for telephones from the 1950s (laughs) yeah kind of like the same concept just not as dated right like certain certain places can communicate with other places, but the other ones you can just never you can just never use that switch uh, It is as easy as us. I mean, I've, I've mentioned this before and it's kind of been uh, I know it's it's been reprinted a lot but that's because it's true is It's really as easy as for us to go to an internal tool that we've built that lives on a web page and we check a box and when the box is checked it would take about 15 minutes to an hour to populate all the servers worldwide. And boom, every system could play with every system that quickly. Wow. Uh, and that's really all we're waiting on. We're just waiting on the permission to make that a reality. And in the meantime, we just have to leave that one box unchecked. That's
0: crazy. Mm-hmm.
1: Do it for the culture. <laughs>
0: uh, as I, I'm interested because I know you said you watch some of our videos. Um, I'm interested as a studio and, you know, on the you've been on the media side, the development side a little bit. How much do gaming studios pay attention to, like, the average, I guess, YouTube comments, forums, and communities, and the things we say on Twitter? Are, 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 are people in the studio seeing all of this, or is it kind of like they don't yeah. really pay attention too much?
1: Well, industry-wide, it's hard to speak to because every studio has its own culture. But in the places that I've worked, they're definitely seen. Uh, it's, and it's, it's, I think it's gained in importance as people have had more of a voice in larger numbers too. So when I was, when I was in IGN way back when, uh, we were kind of like the outlet for readers because social media wasn't a thing, right? It was, we were hardcore game fans writing about games for other hardcore game fans. And that was kind of the way that they could live vicariously through us to talk about games because the tools didn't really exist outside of traditional forums uh, and then by the time he hit the end of the 2000s and into the beginning of the 2010s, as social media really started taking off and YouTube and and, and podcasts, um, it became a lot more obvious, a lot more quickly to people that uh, they could now directly communicate with game designers and game developers and programmers and entire teams and companies. And over the last now, I'd say decade, it's now it's it's become something that's impossible to ignore and why would you want to ignore it? That's your that's your customer telling you exactly what they think in real time to your face. That's invaluable information. And so it's, it's, it's kind of a silly thing to ignore if there are studios that do it. But uh, here at Sionix, I don't know if I mentioned this, but our, our we actually have an internal company motto, and it's community first. That is our internal company motto. It's what we tell people when they start, it's when we have our town hall meetings and our our, our, our other discussions with the company at large, it's, it's about community first. And every design decision we make, every feature that we add, the first question we ask is, does the community want this? Are they going to like this? And if the answer is yes, or hopefully, <laughs> then uh, we put it in the game and we try to make it as cool. And only then, once we've made that decision, do we then start coming in to, with the next questions, which is, should we make this free? Usually the answer is yes. Or is this something that would be better suited as DLC? And so we made it really easy on ourselves most of the time and said, if it's a cosmetic edition, we're going to have a mix of free stuff and paid stuff. Uh, and hopefully, the free stuff outweighs the paid stuff by quite a bit. And then if it's any new game feature, any new map, we're never going to make you pay for. It's always free. Because why would you want to split your audience, take people out of a possible experience that could make them enjoy the game more? I've never understood that, that approach. It's completely monetarily driven. We don't subscribe to that. We, everything that we do is about trying to make the game better. And then if we're going to make money off of the game after people have bought it, it's strictly through cosmetic things and things that do not affect the gameplay. And, and that's, that's, that's our motto and the way that we're approaching it. And it'll never change. It's going to stay that way. That's, that's From beginning to end, that's how Rocket League will always work. That's definitely a good
0: policy, uh, Smoove, You uh, want to get into the uh, Xbox questions, I guess.
1: Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, so my question um, for you, because uh, this year or last year, we've you know we've been blessed to have these mid-gen upgrades with the PlayStation Four Pro, and yeah. now the Xbox One X coming uh, this holiday. I want to know um, how um, your team or if Rocket League will be taking advantage of the um, new Xbox One X hardware.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I will, uh, but not, not this year. We're, we're slated for uh, next year is when we're going to support the Xbox One X. Uh, Microsoft announced it in their press conference at E3. Uh, we even took a picture of us celebrating it. At, at the. If you want to go through our, my boring media. Up- <laughs> uh, but the, that's definitely something we're going to do because our, our standpoint is we want to support as many things as we can. And, and again, our, our whole idea is let's just get Rocket League out to as many people as, as possible. So that's definitely something we want to support. Uh, The reason it's next year and not this year, though, is for technical reasons. We have a lot on our plate, right? We're building the game as it is now. We're bringing the game out to Switch. We're making a lot of updates to the existing product. We have also announced earlier in the year that we're bringing the game to China as a free-to-play game next year. And that's also a lot of development work. So we have a lot of things going on. And because the Xbox One X upgrade is from our, we're not doing any additional new feature as as it is. in relation to rocket league. It's just about making the game look and run better for that platform. Uh, it's not, it's not something that's the highest priority in in comparison to trying to come out on a brand new platform. And, uh, it's, it's in in terms of, of, uh, of getting it out though. It's definitely going to happen. Uh, we'll make an announcement as we get closer to when that's going to when it's actually going to have a date, uh, probably pretty close to when it actually is about to come out. Okay.
0: Uh, another question based on your experience on the media side and now on the game development side, um, how much would you say like as, as far as you know, studios look at game reviews, like look, you know, looking at uh, as soon as the embargo lifts, do they really pay attention to, you know, Metacritic and all the reviews that their games get?
1: Yeah. They look at it religiously. Like when I first made the, really, dude, so when I first when I first left the media and went to Zipper, uh, one uh, the first questions I would get when I when I got there from dozens of people is, "Hey, how does it work there? How do you guys review a game? What do you look for? What do you like? Tell me all about why you guys said this or didn't say this." Uh, there, there, are, and whenever a review for anything comes out, you better believe people are looking at it because. even though it's not the same as uh, a conversation where you have your fans telling you in Reddit or something similar that they like or dislike the game, there's a a bit of officiality to this because now you're looking at a score where someone for all time is saying your game is worth this. And I think that that, there's still a very strong psychological attachment to something like that. And people want to know. They want to know if they're good enough Uh, in the eyes of people who have reviewed all these other games. I I think it's sort of a basic human expectation uh, so, yeah, we read them. Lots of people read them. And we mull over them and we talk about them. I, I feel like I'm a, a bit of an advantage uh, than most because I was on the media side for so long. So I know that, really, it's they're easy to overanalyze. And what it comes down to is what kind of score you get and what kind of approach you get is really based on the reviewer, right? You, is the reviewer who reviewed your game someone who likes the genre, is unfamiliar with the genre, or doesn't like the genre? Is it someone who is... Uh, a newer writer who's just sort of kind of getting their chops right now, or are they a veteran who's seen many, many games across many, many genres before yours? Or did they have a fast deadline? Did they have a short deadline? Did they play all the modes, or did they only play some of the modes? There are so many different factors that go into um, a review that it, it, it's really to obs- it, it can get really easy to obsess over the details, and really, this comes down to the individual who reviewed the game. And even scores, right? When I was at IGN, people would compare GameSpot and IGN scores and say, hey, IGN, you score higher than GameSpot. Why do you do that? Is it because you guys are easier on games? And the answer is no. It's because our scores actually had different meanings. And that's the other thing. If you lack the context, you look at something like a Metacritic or something similar of what a score means to a particular publication. So, for example, when I worked at, I, they've changed the rating system since then, so I'm dating myself a little bit. But when I was at IGN, an eight meant that an eight to an eight point four meant that the game was impressive, and an eight point five to nine uh, to eight point nine meant the game was great. Those were the, the descriptors we had. During that same time, GameSpot, their ratings were eight to not, uh, eight state to, to right before nines were considered great. So right. for them, the moniker of great had a lower score associated with it than ours did. So by default. If we both thought a game was great, their score is going to be lower than ours simply by the explanation of what that score meant, and that's the kind of minutia that you're dealing with when you look at reviews and sort of the meta. And uh, I mean, I could talk about this forever and it's boring, but that, that's that's the that's the sort of that's the sort of approach that every publication takes. Everyone's different; everyone has their own likes and dislikes and personal history, and sometimes it's a crapshoot, and other times. Uh, You have someone who really cares about the game a lot who might really spend a lot of time on it. And other times you might have someone who just got assigned that day and uh, didn't give it the time it needed. So it's really hard to say. But regardless, everyone will obsess over what they get and love the high scores and hate the low scores. That's just just the nature of the beast. Because you know
0: we don't really get to hear or see any reaction from developers once re- reviews are released you know it is they, they don't say anything so it's like you can almost we almost assume like i guess they don't care or they they just keep silent for some reason you know so it was i
1: always wondered you know did they do they really care so well, cool the reason the reason devs keep silent on reviews unless they're fantastic is because do you really want to put yourself in a position where you could be viewed, if, if you're, like, let's say you're criticizing a review, right? Do you really want to put yourself in a position, especially if you're someone at a company who is not normally a spokesperson, where you say something about someone else's criticism about your game, where you open yourself up for more criticism, or perhaps your reaction is read the wrong way or misinterpreted, or maybe it's not misinterpreted and someone is upset about something and just lashing out emotionally. So it makes a lot more sense just to not react at all. And, uh, and just let people do what they're going to do. I, I, think, I think the ultimate, really, in my opinion, the ultimate proof that a game is really good or not is what kind of community does it have? How long was it played for? Do people keep coming back to it? Do they still talk about it? Is it still part of a conversation? Do people want to see follow-ups? Do they remember characters or moments or any of these other things that really stand out? Did it change their perception of the game industry or their personal uh, love for the hobby. Those are the things that really matter. The review scores and reviews themselves are little moments, snippets, in time. But, I def- but uh, just go back and read World of Warcraft launch reviews. You're going to see a range between 7s to 9s, maybe a few 10s, maybe even a few 6s. But that game that was reviewed then is nowhere near the same game that's reviewed now, uh, And if it were to be reviewed. And the same can be said for Rocket League and uh, several other games who have now become um, much bigger than what they initially were and have made changes. And so you can't put too much stock in them in the, in the long term. Uh, but it is impossible to ignore that they have a profound psychological effect on people and can sometimes influence whether or not someone buys your game simply because uh, they look at the score and the score alone and don't necessarily read the text and just use that as sort of like the, the jumping off point. But it's, it's not, not something that's worth obsessing over. Right. Right.
0: Okay. Definitely insightful. Um, now this is a two-part question, right? Frame rate and resolution, which I'm sure you've seen, has been big thing this generation. So, uh, what do you think about the gaming industry? You know, chasing, you know, chase basically chasing 4K, right? Yeah. And also from a development standpoint, and we've talked about this on this on this podcast, we've debated it. When a studio is making a game,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? Do they kind of just build the game and they kind of build the game and then later on in the process they decide, okay, what stable frame rate can we run this game at? Or is it like prioritized before we need this game to run at this frame rate and then build the game around that? Like, how
1: does that go? It depends on the era and the genre. So when. Right now, looking at the current standards needed for to, to make a modern game, most game studios are going to say from the outset, we want our game to run in the highest possible resolution at the highest possible frame rate, simply to seem competitive and to make sure that they're not uh, looked at as inferior because they can't be as good as another game. I think that's sort of like the general approach. Now, in terms of something like Rocket League, frame rate is incredibly important because the difference between playing Rocket League at 30 frames and 60 frames can make all the difference between scoring consistently and effectively do not and if you're playing with someone who's running the game on let's say a super high-end PC who's running it at, at more than 60 against someone who's playing the game on a platform where we can only do it at 30 frames or, or whatnot that person is a, an extreme advantage over the other because they simply can't see the same thing the other person is seeing or react as quickly uh, and it can hinder the gameplay and uh, so you you also have to kind of weigh the importance of a frame rate and how it affects your game. If you're to look at something that's more cinematic based, I love the Walking Dead games from Telltale, right? But I, mean, I really do. I, I play the hell out of those. I've played through them multiple times. Uh, but I don't care what the frame rate is in that game because it doesn't have any bearing on what I'm doing in that experience. I'm enjoying the story and making my choices. You know, if you told me that I had to play Rocket League at, at 20 frames per second because or 24 because it's that's just what's possible on the hardware. I'm going to say, no, I don't want to play it. That sucks. So it really depends on a case-by-case basis. In general, though, most game developers are, are usually fall into kind of two major buckets. And, they, and this is a generalization, I think, that um, may or may not be received well. But the two general buckets are you either have the tech heads or you have um, the passionate artists, right? And both of them have different goals. But both both of those um, groups really want to get the most of their field. The tech heads definitely want to make sure that they use the best technology, get the best performance, can do all sorts of really cool technological feats, and the artists want to make sure that things look as great as possible, as as close to the artistic vision as possible. Um, and there's a lot of overlap there. When you're talking about something like how beautiful a game is, frame rate has a lot to do with that. So, and as does 4K and eventually 8K, uh, and these are all things that I think. Definitely are important in the video game industry, and it's not going to change, I don't think, anytime soon until we get to a point to where frames are either uh, feel like they're either uh, realistic or expected or they're not. I think that eventually we're going to get to a point to where it's just, was it fluid? Yes. Was it stuttery? Yes. And that's, that's the only determining factor, but we're not there yet. Right now, we're obsessed over at least specific minimum benchmarks.
0: Got you. Got you. Okay. Um, so with, uh, you obviously being around games all the time, do you ever get fatigued since you, you know, video games is kind of your career? Do you ever, does it ever bother you that you want to go home and, you know, maybe play a game, but you spent the whole day maybe working on a game or just
1: around games? Do you ever get tired? No, I think I think once you if you love something, it doesn't matter what it is, you can wanna take breaks, you can feel like not doing something right now. But I don't think that's the same as getting tired of it. Like I I've never said I'm done with games. I just need to step away and not play games for a while. It's never happened to me. I was I work all day long, sometimes over the weekends, and yet I still find time to get those achievements and trophies I mentioned, or to go in and play something new because that's just what I'm passionate about. And I think that if you reach a point to where you need time away from something you love that uh, that's a uh, a bit of a warning sign that uh, maybe you don't love it as much as you used to, or you're focusing on the wrong things and uh within that hobby or that or that particular passion so for, for luckily for me that's never happened. I've definitely known many people throughout my almost twenty years in the video game industry uh, that have gotten burned out in games and that's always saddened me to see it because I'll remember them those people when they were super passionate and excited about things and then just see that they don't want to do it anymore because maybe they either work too much or they've, uh, they've just done the same thing for so long that they've grown bored of it. Luckily on my side, it, it hasn't happened. And if if, there, if it ever does uh, I'll, that'll be a very sad day in my life <laughs> right now. I love games. I was up till three in the morning last night playing, playing games. So I, no, there's no stopping that for me right now.
0: Because for me, I know uh, anytime, anytime I get tired of a game, it's usually the genre. I can get tired of a genre for a while, and then I realize I just need to play a different genre. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, like first-person shooters, it happens with me a lot. Like I, if I play, I guess I have a low tolerance for them. If I play like maybe two or three first-person shooter games in a row, I don't want to play. I don't want to play one for like six months. So right. But once I play a different genre, then I'm good again. What was the last first-person shooter? That you played, um, man, what was it? I mean, I, I played the beta or well or the demo of Destiny too, but that was pretty much it. I've, the last one, I don't know. I played the Doom. I know I got tired of Doom. I actually didn't beat Doom because I got so tired of it. I can't do it. You, go, you, you go back and play another one. Eventually. I, well, Battlefield, yeah, yeah. I actually did play Battle. I played a lot of Battlefield One um and i did like titanfall too so yeah i think battlefield one probably
1: and you you think you're going to go back and play another one eventually
0: oh yeah the next one i'm looking forward to is wolfenstein too absolutely i'm looking forward to
1: that so you see you're not really you're not really tired of it permanently though it's just kind of like you know what i've had enough of this i want to move on and i think that's totally natural that's happened to me a few times but i've never grown tired of playing games on the whole i I think that that would be a really bad thing i've that's like a whole life existential life crisis there.
0: Right. Yeah, it's usually just temporary. Yeah. Um Let me see what else I got. Uh any Anybody you got any uh, questions? Yeah, for you? I got one. I got one. He kind of pretty much answered it, but I just want to get a little bit more detailed. Um, I would like to know with everything that's going on right now with all of these games coming out that's online based pretty much, like Rocket League, you pretty much said how you feel about the DLC for your game, but how do you feel about the industry and holes changing and people wanting to do more microtransactions and these loot crates?
1: Uh, that's, you know, that's a really complicated question because I think everyone is approached it in a different way. So I think there are really bad ways to do it, Mm-hmm. And I think there are good ways to do it. And I think, for example, our crates, I think we're doing them in the right way. We mm-hmm. can, you can turn them off entirely if you don't want to deal with them. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Uh, That's and impressive. Do. And, the, yeah, so the first time it ever shows up, if you don't like it, you can, there's a window that pops up that says, I don't want these to go away. And you can, and you can just ignore it. And then if you ever want to turn it back on, you can go to, or if, if you have them on, you want to turn them off, you can go to the options menu and shut them off there. Mm-hmm. So if, if you want to make sure that it's not part of your experience at all, we let you shut it off. And I think that that's one of the important elements that, that, yep. uh, that is important to people. Some people are for it and some people are against it. And I think there are a lot of valid arguments on all sides that can be made for why you should or shouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that there are a lot of other things that, uh, that people kind of focus on in, in terms of those kind of systems that are rightly skeptical. Uh, like, you know, when you put, when you walk something that improves your gameplay behind a, an RNG crate, I don't think that that is a a good service for the player because at that point you're now preying on their will to win in order to further their, their ability to improve in your game and, uh, trying to get them to buy their way to success. Right. That's why all of our DLC, regardless if it's within a crate or with the, if it's a, a regular DLC that's a, bought in a standard way, is all cosmetic because you either like it or you don't, and that's also why we have a trading system. You can trade it with, you can trade something with another player if you want, if, if that's what you want, um, so that if if there's something out there that you didn't get, you have a way to get it. Uh, but we also don't let you. Go to the Steam forums, for example, and sell your stuff. That's against our terms of service. We don't believe in it. We keep it. We keep trading to items only within our own ecosystem, uh, and so that's it's very it's it's very and you can't trade across platform either. So you have to make the right decisions. And even those even those steps that I just mentioned, while we psionics think that that's a good system, there are lots of people out there that would say no. The fact that the system exists at all. We don't agree with, and that's bad. Right, right. We, we, we understand that, but right. that's not the decision um, that we decided to, to go with. We decided to go in the direction we did and tried to make it as easy as possible for people mm-hmm. to move forward or not use it if they don't want to and to ensure that anything that we put in our system wasn't reliant on improving your game in uh, any way. That's one right. of the reasons we think Rocket League is so successful is because when you see someone win or lose – Whatever's happening on that field is a reflection of them. There's no special power, no special ability. No car hits harder than another or goes faster than another one. You're seeing a real one-to-one reflection of that person's skill, which is why we think that we're one of the very few actual sports within video games. That is a buzzword, but you're seeing an actual representation of the person playing right now and what they're capable of. Not no because they didn't unlock any special move. They don't know. They're not exploiting any animation. It's all them. And that's that's what true sport is. And that's that's what, what's most important to us.
0: Uh, a, good a lot of the questions I'm asking you, because I want to like get the truth about a lot of gaming industry myths. Uh, do review score incentives really exist? That rev- uh, studio employees get paid more if their games score a certain... Uh, get a certain score or higher.
1: I have heard that that exists. It's never existed at any studio I've worked at, and it absolutely does not exist, nor will ever exist at Psionics.
0: Okay, because there's 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 narrative all over the internet that yeah, like some developers are pissed if they get they average like below a seventy five on Metacritic because they won't get a bonus or something. I'm like, I, I always
1: wondered if it's true or not because we didn't have any solid evidence ever. <sighs> yeah, I'm, you know. <laughs> I've heard the same things, right? <laughs> I've heard the same thing, but and I wouldn't doubt that that's real. I think that that makes that that makes a lot of sense. That that would be somewhere out there. I think that it's it's it's. I've heard it enough times to, to believe it, but I've never personally seen that happen. It wasn't that way at Zipper. It wasn't that way here at Psyonix. Um I only worked at that other startup, and we didn't have any money to do anything. So <laughs> we could. We were just happy that we got a game out. We didn't even care about review scores. There, it was like, did we make it? Success. <laughs> All the info. Yeah. Um,
0: do you, as far as uh, psionics goes, um, with this big success of Rocket League, you, you obviously got a lot of re- more resources, manpower, and everything like that, and money. Um, did that change the decision on maybe? if y'all want to work on maybe triple projects or stick to smaller projects?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely did. The, the number one thing that it influenced was whether or not we had to make products for anything else, or I should say for anyone else. Prior to Rocket League, a good portion of Psyonix's development history was making projects for other larger publishers. So we did Nosgoth, like I mentioned earlier. We also, uh, way back when, did the multiplayer, developed the multiplayer for the Bulletstorm game. Uh, we helped design the first vehicle level and the original Gears of War. So, I mean, there are a lot. We did a lot of vehicle design on uh, Unreal Tournament 2003 and 2004. I'm sorry, uh, UT3 in 2004. Um, there are lots of lots of things for other people that we did. And prior to Rocket League, there were only two released games that Psyonix had done on our own, and that was the first Battle Cards and then Arc Squadron, which was a, a mobile game that they – we did in 2012. And other than that, it was always a project for someone else. And now because of Rocket League, we can do our own thing. We don't ever have to do anything for anyone else. It doesn't mean we won't or couldn't entertain that idea. Um, but it's right now, it's not something that we have to do or are driven to do. We can do our own thing. And I think that the, the, the double-edged short of that is Rocket League has been so successful and so interesting that then there's kind of a lot of pressure you can put on yourself on something like that is like how do you follow up Rocket League with a different game at all it's automatically it could be it not could be it will be automatically compared to whatever that new game is going to be you're going to have uh, a lot of questions about how good that game is in comparison to other games in that uh, that same genre and whether or not it has that same hook that Rocket League does there's a lot of pressures that come with that next project and uh, rather than obsess over it, we just decided that whatever that next project would be, it doesn't matter. As long as we're happy with the sort of thing that we're putting together, that's all that matters to us. We've, we've proven that we can find success with Rocket League and that, that we made something people like. And that actually, in a way, is freeing on the opposite side because it now gives you a little bit more opportunity to experiment with something different if you wanted to. So we've gone back and forth about the sorts of projects that we would do next and how we'd approach them and what it could mean. But I mean, ultimately it really comes down to what's that game. Is it fun? Do people like it? And if it's less successful or more successful than rocket league, does it really matter that much? I don't think so. I think what matters is are the people who play it like it. Are we happy as developers? Um, And, and really that's, that should be what people focus on.
0: Uh, What's your game of the year so far? If you had to choose one right now, Rocket League.
2: There you go.
1: <laughs> That's self-promotion? Yeah. Yeah. I, you, you know, you, I don't know. I'd have to think about it. Because I, a lot of the games I play, I'm usually really behind when they actually release. Because of my the way that my schedule works, I usually don't get to games until months after they're released. So, for example, my favorite PlayStation 4 game after Rocket League, and I'll remove that from the equation entirely because I'm biased, uh, is Until Dawn. Right? I loved that game. Mm. I thought that was a fantastic game because I'm a horror fan and I really – I used to – when I was a, a designer, I was a narrative designer, so I wrote stories for a living. I was a writer for a long time. I just liked stories. Uh, but I didn't play Until Dawn until I think four or five months after it came out when I was on uh, a holiday break and I could find, I could finally just take the time to sit down and play it. And that's sort of the, the, the cadence that I have to play everything else. I mentioned earlier I was playing uh, – Shadows of Mordor. I mean, that game came out years ago and I'm just now in the last month or so sitting down to really kind of experience it beyond uh, similar to what you would experience at E3, a, you know, a 30 minute, one hour trip with it years ago. And then I haven't touched it since. This is the first time I, I've really gotten to sit down and enjoy that game at length. And that's sort of uh, how I have, I have to play games these days, unfortunately, but it also means that when I do play them, I have a lot more fun because now I'm focused on, on the one game I have to do. It's not like the media days where I had to play so many different games and review them. And I was, uh, I was just like nonstop playing every game under the sun, good, bad and ugly, uh, where I just had to plow through them as quickly as I can. I can actually take my time and, and, uh, and play the ones I only feel like playing. I don't have to do something simply because it needs a review or whatever. Okay. Um, Just a few
0: more questions. Uh, us. they're not gonna let me get away with this in the comment section. They definitely want me to access um, okay. the Rocket League esports league. Like, how much has that impressed you? Just seeing the the incredible stuff, like the high level stuff players have done. Mm-hmm. Did y'all ever? Uh, did y'all ever predict people would be doing those type of stunts on a professional level? And what do you think about uh, esports possibly being at the Olympics? Two part question.
1: Well. I really hope esports are at the Olympics. And I think the Rocket League would be a game that would make a lot of sense there. I think it would, as I mentioned earlier, it's a really true representation of the person playing it. And so I think if they're looking for the epitome of an actual sport in video game form, Rocket League is it. So I'll get behind that initiative all day long a million times. Uh, as far as what people can do in the game, no. We, we knew that they could do some of the things because we saw it in Battle Cars. But the high level of play and the crazy things that people pull off go well beyond what we had imagined for the even the, the turtling. Right, turtling is something that uh, wasn't actively thought of until the beta period. We were running uh, our PvP beta. They thought that it was a thing, and people could actually do it really well. And we created even tracking that stat into the game. But that was late in that development process. And just seeing how styles have evolved over time. They've gone from kind of everyone rushing for the ball at once in those early days to then not too long after everyone started hanging back, trying to be more strategic. Then you had all these kind of – you had the freestylers start coming out. You have have all these different approaches to the game where different styles are emerging, much as you would see in in other sports where people have uh, tendencies to go fast or to to go – Uh, more aggressively. It's really really interesting to see evolve over time and then watch people react to each other's new strategies. And that's one of the things that's fascinating about Rocket League Esports is as these new strategies and techniques are developed, there are new counter techniques and strategies being developed. And it's happening at such a high level and in real time and right in front of you that it's almost mind-blowing. And the best thing about it is unlike a lot of the other games that – that are out there that are on TV or, or streaming as an e-sport, you don't have to worry about a bunch of information being thrown at you. I mean, you just know you're either scoring or you're not, and and you can focus on really cool individual uh, abilities without any net prior knowledge about uh, how the game works or what how it's supposed to how it's supposed to work. Uh, so I, for us, it's it's been amazing the fact that we keep getting more and more opportunity as an e-sport between our universal open on television. We were at the X games for ESPN. Uh, The rocket league championship series has been a big success for us. We get more viewers tuning in to watch it. Every time we keep selling more seats to watch it in person. Every time we go to an event, we're going to bigger and bigger venues, more and more people are interested in it to us. That is sort of the ultimate confirmation that the game is working and that people are happy with it and that they want to get better and, uh, that people want to watch it too, and I, f- the fact that people are fine to watch a video game rather than play it, I think, says a lot about just how fun that game actually is. And we couldn't be prouder. Right. Um,
0: so, uh, smooth, Jack, Jimmy, any any questions? Any last questions? Uh, I got all mine as well. Nine, go. Everybody. Uh, uh, maybe we could take like maybe one more comment section if we can get one more good question from the comment section, and then we're gonna. Let Jeremy get out of here. Um, but Jeremy, in the meantime, um, definitely appreciate you uh, coming on. Um, no mm-hmm. It was good. Thank you for dispelling and telling us, you know, the truth about a lot of video game industry myths and everything like that.
1: Good sure thing.
0: Yeah, um, definitely appreciate that. Uh, definitely hope to, um, you know, see you again. You, do you plan to be at the next E3 or any other gaming events in the future?
1: Yeah, I've been, I've been to every E3 over the last, since 1998, except for two of them. Wow. So the chances are pretty strong that I'll be at the next one. Uh, and I, I'm at a few shows here and there. I, I've, as, as Rocket League has continued to grow, I travel a little bit less than I used to to the game shows. And I let uh, the other team members uh, kind of handle that for us because they're much better at it than I am. And they do uh, they have a much better better handle on things than I do. And uh, I, I, they're just better than me. That's what I'm saying. I'm I'm worthless. Uh, but the, the 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 most important thing I think for us is just to make sure that we are going to these events in general and showing people what we have in in the works. And uh, I think looking forward in the near future, we're going to be announcing some more stuff for the game very very soon. Uh, and I'm excited to see how people react to that. I think it's be cool. That that kid sounds excited. So my <laughs> <quite> bad. Dude. <laughs>
0: Okay, uh, I think we got like maybe one and a half more questions. So, um, the time it takes to develop from from one platform to the next, like let's say you got the game running, like you obviously had the game running on PlayStation 4 first. Uh, how much time goes into uh, getting that you know uh, game ready for the net, for the Xbox One, for example, another platform? How yeah, much
1: manpower be- and hours go into that? Is actually running on PC first and then reported it to PS4 and then finished it on PC. Uh, but that's because the tool set was so similar we were able to do that in a relatively quick amount of time. The Xbox tool set is much, much different than the PS4 tool set. So that required us to go out and get a, uh, a development studio to help us, at panic button, uh, to help us get that a more... Realistic time frame. It would probably have been uh, we likely would be able to do it ourselves if we weren't supporting a live game, but of course we were, so we have to focus on uh, on multiple things at once. Uh, and the same goes uh, is true with Switch. And each platform is different. The PC to PS4 development happened concurrently. We started on PC, started moving over to PS4, focused on that for a while, finished both at around the same time. Uh, on Xbox, it took several several months, and uh, both the external team of panic button uh and several people internally to work on that uh and get that done in time and then once that's out that's another platform you then have to support on top of it and with switch we didn't commit to coming out on switch to nintendo until around uh, late march early april of this year so it's it's been and that's one of the reasons we haven't announced a specific release date is because we want to make sure that when we announce that release date that it's accurate and true, and we're not moving it anywhere. We're not going to try to force the team to meet some date if that, have, that uh, they don't need to. If two more weeks can make I mean a better running game and bless you, not better running game. Uh, but it, it it's a lot of work. I mean, it's not something that is as easy as uh, copying and pasting because of different system architectures, because of different tools that are available to you, uh, different features that are enabled. Even something as simple as like the PlayStation has the ability to change colors on your controller depending on who has the ball. Xbox doesn't have that, right? That's doesn't sound like a big deal, but if you want to support that feature, that's an extra amount of time. Not a lot of time, but the point is, is that you have to spend now one extra cycle on doing something that you wouldn't have to do on the other platform. And then the Switch brings, of course, its own unique, uh, unique challenges that's completely different hardware than it does on the other platforms. Absolutely. Uh, it's handheld. Uh, and on top of that, you have to uh, you have to support very popular modes that the fans on Switch want, like tabletop mode and like ad hoc. So those are things that we had to go in and approach and, and put in the game that we weren't supporting before. It's, uh, but we are very, very confident that the game is going to be running super smooth when it comes out. We just had it at PAX last weekend for the first time. Our feedback was almost universally very, very strong. I think we had like... Two people that were upset that we wouldn't let them change their settings while they're at the show, but that's because we didn't want to mess up the person who had to play after them. But that'll be a feature that is in the final game. Uh, and we're, we're psyched. We we're actually uh, really pleased at what cycle or what stage we are at this point in the cycle for in terms of how well Rocket League is running on Switch. And if we come to another platform... Whatever that platform might be in the future, we're going to take the same approach and make sure that it runs well, feels like Rocket League, doesn't make any compromises that hurt the game, uh, and uh, repeat it for as long as we can. All right.
0: Jeremy, thank you once again for coming through. man. We Absolutely. really appreciate it. It was real
1: informative. All right, man. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate you guys taking time to talk to me. Yeah, it was nice meeting you, man. Thank you for that. No thanks. No it's been a pleasure. Straight
0: viewers, we appreciate y'all coming through to watch. It's been a good show. All right. We'll check y'all
1: later. We out of here. Peace.